practices that we are not even aware we're doing over and over again that eventually shape our values, shape our worldview, shape our perspective without us even realizing it. We begin to just, we carry these set of values, we carry these expectations with us, and I would suggest that many times the kingdom of God, the call of Christ, is for us to become aware of the ways we've been shaped without being, right, without noticing it, so that we might become more formed into the kingdom, more into the likeness of Christ. It means replacing these cultural practices or liturgies with ones that are faith-forming. Does that make some sense? So that's been the, the series. So today I want to talk about apathy versus responsibility. And that might not be the perfect title, right? I, I'm thinking maybe more like individualism versus community. So uh, you have this, the picture I have, TJ, right? The sentence, like, I'm, I'm responsible for only me. You can find lots of images with this, like if you Google images. I'm responsible for only me. Culturally, there's a sense that my, Joe Banker's responsibility is somewhat limited, right? So uh, one of uh, humans' natural reactions is something like, it's not my fault, <laughs> right? Uh, I didn't mean to do that. Uh, my impulse is not to apologize, sadly. My wife would like it if it were. My impulse is typically to say, like, I, like get over it. I didn't mean to. It's not that big of a deal, right? That's on them. It's not on me. Like, I worry about Joe Bankard. I worry about my kids. I'm responsible, right, for my family. I'm responsible to be good at my work. But that's the extent of it, Right? I draw my boundaries of responsibility very, very narrowly. And I think culturally this is often the case, right? Who am I responsible for? Me. My family. If I have a job where there are people directly under me, maybe I'm responsible for them. But this is limited in its scope. It takes on the cultural assumption of individualism, right? My autonomy my freedom, my rights, my responsibility, and I have it in a very local level. The problem with this for Christians is Jesus blows it up. He explodes the idea of who I'm responsible for, right? I want to make something clear because uh, I'm guessing there'll be a little bit of confusion. Something cannot be my fault while at the same time I'm responsible. If my son fails a test, that's not my fault. I didn't fail. But as a dad, I'm responsible to find out what's going on, son, what's happening, right? Is it, is it literally just laziness? Often it's not. It can be anxiety. Is something going wrong at school? What's happening? Are you getting bullied? What's going on with the teacher? I'm responsible as a dad to engage my son and figure out what happened, right? And maybe it's just simply like, he needs to work harder. Okay, well, maybe I can help you do that. I know I, know I can help you do that, right? But I, if I was to say, well, it's not my fault, that's the end of it, that's a problem, right? So taking responsibility is not saying you caused that thing to happen. It says, I'm responsible, meaning I can't just stand by and let these things happen without getting involved. I'm responsible communally. We are responsible for one another. This is the call of Christ. 
You doing something doesn't make it Joe Bankard's fault, doesn't make it Jenny Hurst's fault, but as a pastor, I'm responsible to care, to reach out, to check in on you, to see what's going on. And it's not just my responsibility, obviously, or Jenny's, but it's about us collectively, right? So the famous line after Cain kills Abel, his brother, the first murder in the Bible, and God comes to Cain and says what? Do you remember the question? So Abel's dead. Well, what God asked Cain, where's Abel? Where's your brother? And Cain says, am I my brother's keeper? I don't know. You go find him, right? God doesn't abide by that response. Uh, yeah, you sort of are your brother's keeper. Yes, your love and compassion and concern extends beyond your body, yourself, your immediate family. Jesus wants to draw the circle wider. How do we shift from a cultural perspective that focuses on the individual and my freedoms and what, I, what I'm directly at fault for? It's like a legal view of responsibility. Or am I liable? How do we get out of that mindset into a Christian mindset that says, I'm responsible because the face of the other, every other I come into contact with, their face places a certain amount of responsibility on me to care, to be concerned, to not stand by. So part of this comes from a text called Scandalous Obligation. I think I have a picture of the book. It's written by Eric Severson. He's actually a friend of mine and a colleague. He's in Seattle, a wonderful Christian man. Scandalous Obligation, and the thesis of the book is we're drastically more responsible than we think. So much so that we can't possibly fulfill all of our responsibilities for those that would need it. But instead of feeling guilt, instead of burning out, we have to begin to exist in a state of perpetual grace. Mm -hmm. I'm not enough. We can't get it all done. Instead of saying, I'm not responsible, I'm gonna draw my boundaries narrow so I can check all the boxes before I go to bed at night, I'm going to have a giant responsibility that I can't possibly fulfill, and then I'm going to need God's grace, right? I'm going to need forgiveness. I'm going to need you guys all to pick me up when I can't do it. So at the end of this sermon, I don't want you to hear, you've got to burn yourself out, do more, have no boundaries, get no sleep, constantly be involved, taking care of other people. I'm not saying that. My sermon is not... Oh, your addict brother, you have, to let, you have to loan him money. You have to let him rob you blind. You have to let him stay in your house. I'm not saying that. Don't hear that. We have to draw boundaries. We have to take care of ourselves. We have to get sleep. We have to be safe. Don't stay in bad relationships, I, right? But my fear is our tendency now, my tendency, Joe Bankert's tendency is to become insulated, from the needs of others, isolated from the needs of others. I take on too little responsibility. Well, Jesus makes this pretty clear, right? So the famous story, the Good Samaritan, so you know this, we'll talk about it briefly. So I think I have it up here as the next slide. So Luke chapter 10, a legal expert tried to test Jesus. It's always fun when people try to test Jesus, right? Because he like takes it and like bends their brains into little pretzels and hands them back, right? But it's, it's worth a try. We'll test them. So he, he, he says, Jesus, teacher, rabbi, 
what must I do to gain eternal life? So that's a good question, right? Like, I want to enter the kingdom. I want to be part of the kingdom. And Jesus replies, what is written in the law? Do you remember the most important of all the commands, right? Love God, love your neighbor, right? Follow the law. What's in there? How do you interpret it? So the man trying to trick Jesus responded, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your being, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Do I have one more? And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Do this and you'll live abundantly. Do, like love your neighbor and that's the abundant life. That's the kingdom life that we're promising here, right? And then the story goes, well, who's my neighbor, Jesus? Oh, that's a great question. Who is your neighbor? And of course, the person assumes that the neighbor is like close friends. The person I live next to, my family. He wants to draw the circle very small. Who's my neighbor? Who am I responsible for? And Jesus tells the story, right, of the man going down the road to Jericho, gets beat up and left for dead by some thieves. And there he lies, bleeding, hurting on the side of the road. And the priest comes by and sees the man on the side of the road hurting, says, I'm not going to help, right? I've got somewhere to be. If I touch this bloody person, I become unclean. I can't go to the temple. Walks past The Levite has similar concerns, leaves the person bleeding, keeps going. And then it's the Samaritans. Samaritans, right, the enemy of the Jewish people, they didn't get along. There's a lot of, like, racial tension and racism between uh, Israelites and Samaritans. It's the Samaritan that sees the Israelite hurting, takes care of their wounds, pays the medical bills, finds them a place to stay. And Jesus says, who's the neighbor? And the person trying to trick Jesus is like, the Samaritan. Jesus is like, that's right. Be like that guy. Be like your enemy that actually helps. That's, that's, well, that just blew up my notion of responsibility then. The stranger hurting is my responsibility to care, to do what I can, to assist when I can, that the circle of responsibility extends beyond just other Israelites Goes to Samaritans too. It extends beyond just my family. You begin to feel, I, I begin to feel overwhelmed almost. And because I feel that way, that's why I close down. That's why I don't want to know about the suffering other. That's why I don't want to know what's happening in my community. I don't want to know about the people who are hurting. Because something inside of me, the, this, this Christ-like call is saying, Joe, you can't be apathetic. You don't get to not care. That's not the call. So we come to the story of Judas, the great scapegoat in history. I was so touched that when Jody read, I heard people saying, oh, and you actually, I heard empathy for Judas. That never happens. (laughs) Judas doesn't get any empathy. No one names their child Judas. (laughs) Think about that. There's very few names in the world. You don't name your kid Adolf. You don't name your kid Judas. Every other disciple, get, like Peter, no problem. Paul, Simon, oh yeah, no problem. Luke, love it. <laughs> Judas, I haven't heard of Judas. Like, oh, I'm Judas. It would be like, whoa. <laughs> you, you talk about a stigma. Am I, am I wrong? <laughs> the betrayer of Jesus? Like, no way. No way. Judas, uh-uh. But... How is he different than Peter? Peter denied Jesus three times. The disciples scattered. 
and ran. Whatever's going on with Judas, it's complicated. Whatever you think about Judas, it's more complicated. Because when he hears that Jesus is arrested, when he hears that he's going to go to his death, he doesn't rejoice. He's not excited about it. He doesn't think like, my plan worked. He's not petting some hairless cat. I want sharks with lasers on them or whatever. He's not, he's not right? One million dollars. That's not, Judas isn't doing any of that stuff. So what does it say? What is Judas' reaction in Matthew? Do you have this for me? I think I have it. One more. Yeah, so this is Judas in the silver, right? So the next line, this is what was read. When Judas, who betrayed Jesus, saw that Jesus was condemned to die, he felt deep regret. I, I would call this like repentance, like confession, like, uh. And he doesn't just feel it. The next. So he returns, and he says, I don't want the money. He, he's trying to do something about it, right? Repentance means I, I want to undo this. And so he wants to give the silver back. I did wrong. I betrayed an innocent man. Now, I don't know what Judas thought was going to happen when he kissed Jesus. I don't know. But whatever happened, that doesn't seem to be what he planned. But here's, here's where Judas gets failed by two groups. He goes to the priests. He goes to the religious leaders. He goes to the very people in his community that are supposed to hear your confession, that are supposed to hear when you want to repent. When you need absolution, you go to the priests. He goes to them, and he hands the money back, and he's, he feels deep regret. And then maybe the most bitter words in all of Scripture, here's what they say to him in response. But the religious leader said, what is that to us? That's your problem, your responsibility. You did it. Don't make us responsible. Don't look to us. You're on your own. And that's often the culture we live in. These, this is the practices, the liturgies, the values that get inside of us. That's their problem. Judas threw the silver pieces. Oh, go back one. No, you're good. Judas threw the silver pieces into the temple and left. Then he went and took his own life. Many of you in the room have actually been hurt by the church, maybe not to this degree, but you needed someone to see you and love you, to like welcome you, accept you, and you met judgment or a deaf ear or worse, like you experienced trauma at the church. And I, all I can say is I'm so sorry. Like that should never happen, right? Like church trauma is the worst so personal and difficult to deal with. But this is what Judas experiences in his moment of deepest need when he is grief-stricken, is filled with remorse, and the people who should know better cast him out and say, that's on you. But Judas is failed by another group. Where are his friends? Where are the disciples? He's been with them for three years, every day, roaming around Galilee, poor, sleeping outside, hanging out with Jesus. He's just alone. 
going this journey to take his own life by himself in utter despair. And the disciples are wrapped up in their own survival, their own fear, their own stuff as Jesus is being killed. And I just wonder how true that is of us and the people around us that are hurting and I don't know, don't care, am self-absorbed, have my own bills, my own issues. The call of Christ is that we are truly, deeply responsible for one another. Not because it's our fault when someone else does something, but we're responsible to take care of one another. And this, as a prime example in our community right now, is these human beings, these families, these men and women, these children, suffering from homelessness, don't know where to go, have no space. We, the hotel vouchers are procured, still not enough space. Put a tent outside with a heater and it's still not enough space. Freezing outside, just cold, bitterly cold. And it's pretty easy to say, it's your fault. You're an addict or whatever other stereotype you want. You're mentally ill. You're not safe. You've made mistakes. So easy. It's easy to blame Judas. I mean, he made some pretty bad choices. He's not innocent. But at some point, when are we going to learn or unlearn? We are responsible for one another to care, to love, to support. And that's not in a way to make you feel like guilt. It's like we should feel inspired that we don't have to do this by ourselves. That no one has to take the long walk to the blood field like Judas alone. That we've got people that are like, Joe, you don't have to take that walk alone. I'm right here. I got you. Susie, you don't have to walk this alone. Henry, you don't have to walk this alone. Chris, you don't have to walk this alone. I'm here. I got you. I want that to be true. Like, do you got me? I hope. Do I have you? I hope. But we're going to prove it in how we love, in what we do. And I think part of this is shaping our perspective away from this more individualic, isolated, family-oriented mindset to one that Christ says, right? The neighbor is every face you come into contact with. That is the face of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful that you demonstrate for us what taking responsibility for others really looks like in your son. What it looks like to truly, truly love our neighbor. My prayer is that you would prompt us, that your spirit would challenge us, that we would not be motivated by guilt, but we would be motivated by enthusiasm, opportunity, love, that we get to make new relationships, that we get to engage new people, that we get to bear each other's burdens in a way that is joy-filled and life-giving. And so challenge us this day and inspire us this day. Give us courage to follow you where you'll lead. Amen. Mm -hmm. If you would please stand for our closing song.